Good morning. It is so good to be with you this morning, to worship alongside with you. For those of you who are in person and for those of you who are joining us online, welcome. And as we begin the message this morning, I would like your help. I'm going to call out a name and I would like you to complete it for me. Okay? Ready? Alexander the? King Herod the? Great. Okay, come on. Good, yes. Pope Leo the? St. Catherine the? Yes, we could go on and on and on and on, but you guys are good at this. I, in fact, in a quick search, you know, I found over 150 individuals throughout the course of history who have officially been titled the great. Rulers of empires, kings and queens, military heroes, religious leaders, Here's the thing, most of them were not that great. <laughs> Many of them earned that title the hard and bloody way. They were tyrants. Some of them were noble, they had a solid reputation, but most of them were of some various shade in between. For example, Alexander, he did some great things, but if we were truly going to evaluate his moral character, his ethics, uh, his decision-making we would conclude that he was Alexander the not-so-great. King Herod, even worse, even worse. And here's, here's the problem. The problem is that greatness is often subjective. It's determined through our human logic, and it's colored by a worldview that is almost always neither biblical nor godly. And so it's always a hit-or-miss proposition. There will be individuals that are deserving of the title, and there will be those that are not. There will be many that we agree on, and there will be many that we don't. And so I guess the moral of this introduction is that just because we call someone great, it doesn't make it so. However, what if, what if Jesus called someone great? What if in his perfectly divine logic... Jesus designated someone the goat, the greatest of all time. Could we agree that when Jesus calls someone great, it probably is so? Yeah, I think so. I would say yes. And this morning, we're going to be looking at an individual for whom Jesus said that those who were among those born of women, none is greater among those born of women, which I think includes most of us, there has risen no one greater. His name is John, also known as John the Baptist. Among all mortals, Jesus calls him great. But, but why? What was so great about John? I mean, it doesn't seem that it had anything to do with the results of worldly accomplishments or success. But seemingly, it looks like it has everything to do with the fact that John faithfully and courageously lived out a God-ordained calling, a calling on his life to prepare the way, to set the stage, or more precisely, as we're going to see, to warm up the crowds for what will soon become an introduction or the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look, look closely at how exactly John prepared the way and then really what that means to, to you and me. 
But first, we want to set John aside just for a moment because I do want to share with you a few words about this new sermon series, which begins today with John. See, I too have been called by Pastor Beatty to prepare the way for this truly exciting season of uh, us learning and loving and living out Scripture in this new series titled Certainty. The Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke. And we're truly excited about this because what, what I have found, at least, is that any time that we do an exhaustive look into any of the gospel accounts, there's this great universal interest. It's appealing uh, to most all of us to reflect on the life and ministry of Jesus. Not only engaging in this fascinating narrative, the stories, the parables, uh, but, but really about engaging with the most intimate of words and actions and expectations of Jesus. And so the sermon guides that we have will be following this. They're available at the Resource Center. They're also available to download online. Uh, just take one, the e-copy off there. And in them, there's a, uh, a pretty in-depth introduction to, uh, to Luke and where we're headed with this. So I'll just hit a few of the highlights uh, before we get back uh, to John. And I'll ask you to do uh, some further exploration of, uh, of this background information on your own. But as we look at Luke, the author of Luke is Luke. Luke is the good doctor. He is a physician that is referenced in Colossians 4.14. He is also supposedly, likely from Antioch. This was referenced in many of the early church writings. Eusebius, Jerome, Clement, all speak of Luke in Antioch. Uh, Luke was a very faithful companion to the Apostle Paul. Uh, love, love, love. 2 Timothy uh, 4.11, Paul is listing all of the individuals who have deserted him, who have left him, except for... My faithful friend Luke, he's a good friend. We also learn uh, from Luke that he's the author of the biblical book of Acts. Now, I often like to refer to Acts as Luke part two. But maybe most interesting is that Luke is the only known Gentile, non-Jewish author of any biblical book. He was well-studied. He was highly intelligent. We get this. It's indicated by the sophistication of his writing. He used a very high classical Greek that was unique to any of the other gospel authors. And his account is technically relative to genre. His account is a historical biography. It has a great, great exactness and detail. In fact, regarding the historical precision, one of the stories I really love is about a, a gentleman named Sir William Ramsey. He's of Scotland. He was born in 1852. He was a Nobel Prize winning chemist. He was a well-traveled archaeologist, and he was also a proponent of what's called the higher critical view of Scripture. That basically means that he was a skeptic. He was a, skeptical of, a skeptic of the biblical accuracy and truth and inerrancy. Uh, he held prestigious positions at Oxford and Aberdeen, and it was from there uh, that he said that Luke could not be validated, and therefore both the gospel bearing his name and the follow-up book of Acts, Luke part two, uh, it, that in it it should be uh, discredited from Scripture. And so to prove his claim, Ramsey began traveling, retracing the steps of Luke and Acts, researching all of the various extra-biblical sources and investigating all the facts. His conclusion was practically an apology to Luke. He wrote famously, Luke is a historian of the first rank. 
Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed along the greatest of historians, Luke. And yet, what we're going to see uh, in all of this historical richness, Luke never loses sight of this theme that he carries throughout his writing, that Jesus is our Savior. All the historical context is going to connect the reader to one central statement. And that statement is in Luke 19.10, that Jesus, the Son of Man, came to seek and to save the lost. To seek and to save. That's the bottom line. And by anchoring our sermon series to this thought, we are going to notice this theme of salvation and Savior throughout the entire series. It, just quickly, for instance, what we're going to notice that we did back in Advent is that the shepherds are told not that just a baby is born in Bethlehem, but they are told that for unto us in the city of David is born a Savior. We're going to see that when, when Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, who do, you, who do you say that I am? Peter says, well, you are the Christ, the Messiah, Messiah, the salvation. Simeon, who was in the temple, and he was told that he would not die, that he would, he would have to wait until he saw God's salvation. We see Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was up in that tree, and when he came down, he invited Jesus to his house. And when Jesus entered his house, he said, well, today salvation has entered your home. We even see it in one of the unique physical healings within Luke, where uh, Jesus says, not that your faith has healed you, but your faith has saved you. And so over and over and over, and yes, Luke is going to present Jesus as this just wonderful rabbi, a masterful teacher, a supernatural miracle worker. But at the end of the day, most importantly, Luke, with an emphasis on compassion and humility and service, is going to present Jesus as our Savior, the one who is bringing salvation to a lost world. And so I would encourage all of us, keep an eye to this. Every week that we take time to, to look at one of the passages in Luke and we move through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, notice how often we are reminded that Jesus is our Savior. And so uh, lastly, before we get back to John, certainty. Why would we call the series Certainty? Why wouldn't we call it Jesus is our Savior? Or something along those lines. Well, if you watched the video, maybe you caught it in the very first sentence of Luke. We see it in four verses, but it was one sentence. We find our answer. Uh, Luke writ, wrote his introduction, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also." <laughs> having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The sign of a true historian. Just right up front, Luther begins with his methodologies, his sources, and his purpose. He acknowledges that many have written about Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we have the four gospel accounts in the canon of Scripture that have been preserved for us. But have you ever thought that they weren't written in a vacuum? 
Many people had experienced Jesus, and many had written down their accounts and shared them and circulated them, just as they had uh, circulated and shared their oral accounts of having experienced Jesus. And while Luke admits right up front, hey, I wasn't there. I'm, I'm, I'm not an eyewitness. But I have carefully, carefully, carefully for a long time investigated everything around me. And now I want to lay out all these findings in a very orderly fashion for you. And he does this all for one guy. Now he was written to Theophilus, but God has preserved it for you and me. But at the time, Luke is saying, I'm doing this all for you. I'm doing this all for you, Theophilus, who likely, we don't know a lot about Theophilus, but likely he was a Roman official, a local magistrate, maybe some sort of regional governor. Some commentators will mention that in this time, it was very common for physicians to be servants in the home of a wealthy family. And so maybe he was a past um, servant relationship, Luke was, with Theophilus. What we know for, clear, for sure, though, is obvious is that Theophilus was a guy of, of high regard, high standing, who had been open to Christian teaching. He had been listening all this time, maybe to Luke, maybe to others. Maybe he, he was around town uh, when Paul came through and spoke the gospel and taught the gospel. And so under the direction of the Holy Spirit, Luke is now going to take on this extremely ambitious project so that Theophilus may have certainty, confidence with beyond any doubt in all that he has been taught. And so I would suggest for, for those of us today who are followers of Jesus, maybe we have certain questions. We still have certain uh, uh, curiosities maybe about who Jesus is. What did he do? Uh, then I'm especially hopeful that our time in Luke is going to bring answers, clarity to each of you in these matters But most excitingly for us is that for those of you who don't yet know Jesus, don't follow Jesus, and you have doubts, curiosities, questions, or like Theophilus, maybe you've sat under some teaching. Maybe you've you've heard some things, and you're not sure how that all fits together, what's all going on here. Then our prayer is that the inspired, historical, orderly words of Luke will bring you great certainty. They will bring you the assurance that is needed without a doubt that Jesus came to seek and to save you personally. Luke, with certainty. So let's begin. Let's let's go back to John. Go back and check out the book for more of that introduction. But uh, let's let's go back to John, or let's go back to John the Baptist. And what we're going to see is that Luke gives us this introduction, and then he writes about the nativity and the Christmas story. We saw this in chapters one and two. Jesus is a baby. We have an episode of uh, Jesus visiting the temple as a twelve-year-old, and that's chapters one and two. If you were with us in December, you'll know that we covered most of this in our Advent messages. They were chapters 1 and 2, uh, uh, primarily. And uh, we now join chapter 3. This is where we are. Jesus is around, Luke would tell us, around the age of 30. And we pick back up with John the Baptist. We read in 3 verse 1, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, 
During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That's awesome. I don't know if you're like me, but that's a three-week equipping class right there. That is so awesome. I mean, we could dig into the lives of these, of these historical figures. We could analyze their leadership and, and so much more. And you know what? For Luke, that was the point. That's the point. See, what's about to happen is so monumental, so monumental in history uh, that he, he wants to be certain that the historical setting is known, that it's documented, that it's recorded, that anyone could recreate this time and place. This, this historical moment, anyone could recreate that without issue. And so he starts, he starts internationally, and he says, uh, hey, hey, every, hey uh, Theophilus, and you and me, this is what's going on in Rome. We've got the third Caesar, we had Julius, we had Augustus, now we've got Tiberius. And this is who they're appointing, Pilate. And then he says, here's what's going on in Israel, nationally. Uh, we have all these tetrarchs, Herod and some brothers. And um, then this is what's going on spiritually, at the temple, we have Annas and Caiaphas. Actually, Caius is in charge, but Annas is his father-in-law, and he still has all the power. Uh, but then we're going to continue to funnel it down to John, the son of Zechariah. And John, we actually last saw him at the end of chapter 1. We read that John, the child, had grown and become strong in spirit, and that he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. That day and that public appearance... That's right now. This is chapter 1. This is where we are. And so John is on the scene, and he's making quite a scene. He was born the son of a priest, Zechariah, and at some point, John goes rogue. He, he leaves the temple priesthood destiny that would have been his right within his lineage, and he heads out to live in the Judean wilderness, where we are told, Matthew, that he wears clothes made of camel's hair, with a leather belt, and sustains himself on a diet of locust and honey. I would think, to most people, and I'll draw maybe some 1970s lingo here, John was a strange cat. <laughs> he, he was an odd duck. And yet, um, he, he, he was like a prophet right out of the Old Testament, it seems, in the first century. And you know, that's a pretty good way to think of John. In fact, Jesus himself would say that um, he would say that the law and the prophets were proclaimed until up to John. And so in a real sense, John was the last Old Covenant, Old Testament prophet that he would be used now as a transition voice piece to Jesus. Well, John's out there, and then it says further, he went into uh, the region around the Jordan River, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I've never been there. Would love to go there. But from everything I've heard, this region that is north of the Dead Sea, oh, it's rugged. It's, it's barren. Very little grows there. Very few live there. And yet, and yet John is led, obviously God is leading him, but he, he, he decides to follow and obeys into this really difficult, extreme remote place for a preaching and baptism ministry. It's not the sort of advice that we would receive today from any of our uh, church planting experts. 
But the crowds came out. The multitudes of people came to participate and to listen to what John was saying. And that is so counterintuitive to our thinking. I mean, think about it. God's saying that, or John is saying that God has given me the, the, the most monumental message, the greatest message in over 400 years. And he has sent me into the Judean desert to reach the people of Israel. You have to think, even his best of friends were saying, hmm, all right, John, good luck with that. Go with it. Good luck. And so that's a question for us. You know, John obeyed and God managed the attendance. He handled the people coming. Do you or I have a desert calling? Now, I'm not talking about remote and barren and rugged living. I'm talking about a, um, a calling that is counterintuitive, just as counterintuitive as John. Maybe to go somewhere, maybe a, a relocation, so to speak. Uh, maybe it's a prompting to act on something right where you are in your neighborhood. You know, maybe it's something just crazy, right? Just, uh, we're going to start a Bible study at one in the morning for everyone getting off a second shift. That's crazy, right? Who's coming to that? <laughs> Anytime I think that we're tempted to say, well, man, no one will ever hear, will ever come to this place at this time to hear me tell a message about Jesus then we need to look to John the Baptist as an example of obeying God's call and allowing God to manage attendance. He's proven it here, and I think that we can, we can think through that as those opportunities come in our life where we prayerfully discern God's calling. John preached, and he baptized. And this leads us to one of the more common questions around John the Baptist. I don't know if you're thinking it now, but you say, well, how, how did John the Baptist baptize people before Jesus had been baptized. I mean, don't we identify with Christ when we are baptized ourselves, that we are buried with Christ in baptism, when we are raised to walk in a newness of life? Jesus hasn't even gone through death or crucifixion and resurrection yet. How, how, how does this happen? What's going on with this baptism? This, this might surprise some of us, but baptism was not Christian in origin. Baptism was instituted by the Jews, and in the first century, it was used in really two, two primary ways by the Jews in Judaism. Uh, the first was when a Gentile would convert to Judaism, become a proselyte. And so there were three things that were required to become a proselyte, to become a religious Jew as a Gentile. Three steps. The first, that you would have instruction by a scribe. The second, if you were male, circumcision. And the third was to be uh, baptized, immersed in water uh, by a priest. And so that in itself would give the, the imagery, the, the language of having a full religious cleansing. And you would then be, be a religious Jew. But also baptism was used by the Jews for Jews, where uh, it was purification, Maybe you were going to attend temple worship. Maybe you had become unclean or defiled in any number of ways according to the law. And in this, the individuals, they baptized themselves. They would go to the local pool, which was called a mikvah, and they would basically submerge themselves and be baptized. So with Jewish baptism, you were either baptized by someone else as a Gentile, or you baptized yourself as a Jew. 
So get this. John's baptism was the same for both Jews and Gentiles. This would have been shocking. This would have been outrageous. John was promoting the forgiveness of sins for both Jews and Gentiles in the same manner. Just as a Gentile would be converted. And so for Jews, the outrage was that they were to admit that they were no different in God's eyes than anyone else. It meant that identifying as a person of God was not based on birthright, but in the admission of sin and the desire for a fresh start through repentance and a repentant heart. And what we're soon going to learn about John's baptism is that, that it wasn't one of transformation. There was nothing mystical going on. It wasn't one of purification like they had been accustomed to. There was no necessary outward cleansing going on. It was one of preparation. And I think we need to keep in mind that John wasn't making all this up. <laughs> he wasn't sort of just going along with it in this ministry of preparation. But he, was, um, he would be affirmed in, the, in, in this ministry by Jesus and that he was the fulfillment of prophecy. He was the fulfillment of what we see in the, in the, by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 40 verses 3 and 5. That a voice cries in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, making straight in the desert a highway for our, our God. Every valley shall be lifted, every mountain and hill be made low, uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John was the voice crying out. John was paving the way for Jesus. And in historical cultural context, this was beautiful, beautiful imagery of what was going on. See, for many, many centuries in Eastern kingdoms, whenever a king would want to visit a certain region within their domain, they would send out a road crew, a royal DOT. And uh, they were preparing the way for the king, literally. Clearing debris, strengthening the causeways, uh, straightening the curves and flattening the hills. Uh, preparing the way for smooth travel and safe, tra safe arrival. Smooth travel and safe arrival. John's task was not literal road work, but in a spiritual sense it was exactly the same. Removing obstacles, leveling the ground, Smoothing out the rough spots, not in the roads, but in the hearts of the people. Preparing the way for the king of kings. That his arrival and his message would reach those with expectant hearts and genuine faith. And so as he prepares the way uh, in his preaching, we are given three instructions, really, that John points to. And let's look quickly at these three instructions today as he prepared the way. The first of this is that John preached, people be warned. People be warned. In verse 7, we see that he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers, Whew. who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Ouch. You know, the Lord gifts those who teach and preach with unique styles. Pastor Beatty is wonderfully and uniquely anointed by God in his style. Pastor Andrew, Sonny, Brian, Miss Marie, 
all each unique. And yet I can't recall, maybe you can, I can't recall across all of these styles ever hearing a teaching or a sermon begin at River Oaks with, you bunch of snakes. (laughs) Thankfully, right? (laughs) Thankfully, right? Well, for certain, you bunch of snakes would have been alarming to hear. Uh, It would have been especially struck a nerve with the religious or the political leaders who had ventured out to hear John. And the, the implication to the crowds, including those leaders, who were very fearful that he was a threat to their authority. The the Jewish historian Josephus would later write the hatred that they had for John because they were were afraid that he was uh, usurping their authority. He was becoming more popular. He was telling they no longer need to go through the priests. And so they would come out. And the implication to them and the crowds was that they had slithered out of their holes as if alerted to pending judgment. But... In coming to hear, they were desiring to hear how their genealogy and their religiosity would save them from that judgment. And that wasn't John's message at all. See, John would go on to say, and do not begin to say to yourselves, I know what you're thinking, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. I mean, you've got to imagine the reaction, right? John is attempting to strip away the, the religious, the superficial facade that so many were hiding behind, that veneer. And, and, and he was saying, you, you evil, sneaky, slimy snakes, you think just because you were born a Jew with Abraham your father and you follow all the rituals that you were well positioned before God, you're not. And judgment is very near. It's difficult to hear. It's difficult to hear now. But you know what? It's a, it's a similar message for all of us today, though not technically of the lineage of Abraham in our genealogy. See, for those of us who, who attach our assurance of salvation to our Christian lineage, that we were, uh, were good to go because we were raised in a Christian home or we were married to a strong believer We rely solely on our good works or or compliance to rules and rituals. John would call us out too. He'd say, strip away all that. Know God personally. Invite him into your life and move from the superficial, the wrath-inducing assurance of salvation to one that's of a genuine heart change. And so, yes, John begins with this strong message and this warning, but I have to be thinking that John is thinking, "Give, give me a second. Give me a second, people. I'm, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. Hang with me. I'm going to point you to the one, Jesus, who's coming to take that judgment for you. You know, in other words, I, I need you to hear the bad news. Because if you don't hear the bad news, then you can't fully appreciate the good news. I think that's true for us as well. Right? So stay with me. But be warned. Secondly, John preached, people bear fruit. Verse 10 says, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? That's a great question. We should leave here every Sunday asking that question. Leave every small group asking that question. Every time in personal study of scripture asking that question. What do we do? And we think back to the comment John made at the first of verse 8. He said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
I think the question the people were asking was more like, well, John, what does that look like to bear fruit in our repentance? Give us some practical instruction here, John. So he does. He says that when you genuinely repent, you will turn from your sins and this false sense of standing before God. Your life will bear witness to this change. I do want to mention that the understood, clearly understood definition of repentance in the original Greek is much like the, the word repentance today. That in it, it really meant uh, turning, to turn, uh, to turn around, or more precisely, it meant to turn or change one's thinking in a way that one's actions follow. So in other, in other words, to repent means that I'm changing my mind in order that my heart and my hands and my feet go that same direction. And so John specifically says when that happens, when you truly repent from the way that you're going and you turn and you ask forgiveness and you turn uh, inwardly to God, you will care for others. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food, do likewise. You'll love your neighbor with your coats and your scarves and your hats and your food items. And like so many of you have done and continue to do this month during Love Your Neighbor. Also, you will demonstrate honesty. A tax collector came. They're all coming out. A tax collector came and said, what shall I do? John says, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Mr. Tax Collector, be honest. And you know, tax collectors got a, well, they, they earned a bum rap. They were despised for a reason, but uh, to their benefit, they were within a tax system which actually encouraged them to be despised. See, Rome would say, this is how much tax you are to collect, and now we encourage you, we legally protect you, we advise you, collect more to make your living. You can keep it all. Hmm. The abuse and the greed that would go with that. And we notice that John didn't say, okay, you need to change your profession. <laughs> you need to stop being a tax collector. He said, no, be one with integrity. And your treatment of others will change. When we truly repent from our sin, when we turn to God inwardly, there's, there's genuine change. Our treatment of others will change. The soldiers asked him. The soldiers, plural, man, they're all coming. What shall we do? Again, John doesn't say, lay down your arms, leave your position. He says, stop extorting money by threats, false accusations. Be content with your wages. Don't abuse, malign, slander. Be kind, be respectful. John's baptism, much like our own repentance of sin, should always result in visible change. Tangible change in word, in deed, in thought. And really, John is just preaching what Jesus and Paul and James and others will preach as well. Be different. Be different. Be different in a Christ-like way right where God plants you. Be a different kind of tax collector, a different kind of soldier, a different kind of teacher, a different kind of retail associate, a different kind of attorney, a different type of student, a different kind of retiree. And when we think of it in this way, I think what it causes is for us daily to reflect on our walk. We'll ask the question, am I bearing Christ-like fruit where God has planted me today? And if I'm not, if it's not visible and tangible, 
then what do I need to repent from? What do I need to turn from, change my mind so that my heart and my actions follow? And you know, one of the things that I've discovered throughout my walk is while that's very necessary to to sort of think about what are those things I'm turning from, that as we do that, the more often we do that, we think less and less about the things we're turning from and about the one we're turning to. Keeping an eye on it is on who it is that we're turning toward. That's a way to show genuine change, visible change. And that leads us to the third, the most exciting point that John has when he preaches here. In preparing the way John preached, people meet Jesus. We read that as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning him. You can imagine the buzz, right? He gives them the best news yet. He says, whoa, 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 it's not about me. I'm just baptizing you with water. Remember, no transformation, no purification, preparation. But he who is mightier than I, he's on his way. He's coming. The strap of him whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, the actual transformative change of the heart. His winnowing fork in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John says, this is not at all about me. It's about him. I'm the messenger. He's the message. I don't even deserve to be his servant. I don't deserve to wash his feet, take off his sandals. He will baptize you with this Holy Spirit, transformative, cleansing, once and for all, baptism. The result of genuine life change, repentance, and belief. He will still bring judgment, still be warned, but he will be a savior to those who follow him. He will bring them into his barn. My words and my warnings are meant to remove the obstacles in your heart to prepare that path and pave the way for our long-awaited savior. Don't miss the message that I have for you folks. Following this, Luke is going to go on to write that John preached many other exhortations of good news. Undoubtedly, he invited the people to prepare their heart that they might meet and they might recognize and they might know the Savior. Really, that's that's the same invitation today. Uh, Except, unlike the crowds along the Jordan River, we don't wait in anticipation any longer. We can meet Jesus now. We can repent we can believe, we can turn from ourselves. we can confess that Jesus is indeed Lord of our life, and we can meet him right now. The question, I mean, it's sort of the elephant in the room question then. Have you met Jesus? If your answer is no, then please know that it's our highest calling. It's our highest privilege. It's all of ours as followers of Jesus to introduce you to answer your questions. If the answer is yes, then I believe the challenge out of John's message is to continue to make it about the message and not the messengers. So since meeting Jesus, has your fellowship, your love, your devotion, has it drifted? Has it become more about a particular teacher, a pastor, an author, a daily devotional blogger? a popular worship artist or musician, all are helpful, 
important, but all are messengers unworthy to untie the straps of the sandals of Jesus. So the message of John is meet Jesus and continue to follow Jesus. There's so much. If you guys had another 45 minutes, <laughs> we still have a run-in with John and, and, and Herod and um, the baptism of Jesus, but that's your homework. <laughs> Chapter 3 of Luke, read it this week. And uh, in closing, though, a few thoughts. First of all, do you know the good news of God's salvation? Have you met Jesus? Reflect on that. Think of that. Do you want to know more about the life change he offers through repentance and belief? Use your Hey, I'm Here card. Just make a note. Contact us immediately after the service or anytime during the week. For followers of Jesus, is your daily walk bearing Christ-like fruit? Are you demonstrating compassion, kindness, humility, integrity as evidence of your repentance? Have your hands and your heart and our feet, have they turned the same direction as our minds? Also, are we preparing the way, removing stumbling blocks for unbelievers in our life to meet Jesus? Are we ready to give an answer to those who ask us the reason for our hope and to do so with gentleness and kindness and respect? If not, again, it's our, it's our privilege and our calling to help equip and encourage you in that. Let's pray about these things. Lord, we thank you for your inspired word, that you have preserved it, Lord, for our benefit. We praise you for your servant, John. May he be an encouragement, Lord, for us to remain strong in our convictions, faithful to where you call us. Lord, give us that courage to proclaim your name, to speak of your salvation, to demonstrate your love. Fill us with your wisdom and your grace, Lord, that we might bear good fruit so that your name may be praised and honored. Work through us, Lord, that others may know you, that they may meet you, that they may know your salvation and that gift. We ask this, Lord, in the name of the one who came to seek and save us, Jesus Christ. Amen.